Hello, everybody, and welcome into episode number 84 of the Bible Reading Podcast. Today's big Bible question, who is God? Is he wrathful and scary in the Old Testament, but merciful and loving in the New? Why is the Hebrew word chesed probably the greatest one-word description of the nature and character of God? Well, gee, that is a long title. Happy Monday, friends. Today begins day number five or six. I actually didn't count. Uh, I think five of shelter in place for us in central California. Yesterday, when my son and I went for a walk in our neighborhood, which is in the city of Salinas, California, like the city city, like no woods around, we happen upon a gaggle of turkeys, like eight of them atop our neighbor's house. They were going all around our neighborhood. So uh, I guess it would seem the animal are retaking their former territory with less and less humans on the street. I, for one, welcome our new turkey overlords. As long as they can clear up this coronavirus thing and this economy thing, you can count on me to vote straight turkey in the November elections. All right now on to more serious things. Today's Bible readings include Exodus 34, Proverbs 10, John 13, and a Ephesians 3. Our focus passage is from Exodus 34, which has long been one of my very favorite passages in the Old Testament. Some people who have not actually read the Bible, at least not read the whole Bible, sort of have the idea that the, quote, God of the Old Testament is harsh and judgmental and terrifying, but the, quote, God of the New Testament is merciful and kind. Well, the fact of the matter is, the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are very much the same, and He doesn't change. But it's hard for us to wrap our mind around the fact that God is both kind and merciful and holy in a consuming fire. So I heard a great Tim Keller sermon today on this dynamic about the nature and character of God. It talked about how Jesus was a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, which you find in the book of Hebrews. For a Jewish person to hear that, I guess for most of you, you're like, who's Melchizedek? But for a Jewish person to have heard that, that would have been a very astonishing and strange statement. For them, the priests were the ministers of health and mercy and their society. They were the social workers, the medics, the nurses, and the ministers really kind of all in one. This is why Jesus commanded the cleansed and healed lepers to go show themselves to the priest in Luke 17. Those lepers were healed already, but the priests in their sort of compassion and social work function would need to have a record of them being cleansed. They were the compassionate arm of the governmental leadership of the people of God. Now, kings, on the other hand, were not. They were far more focused on justice. If you did wrong, it was the king in his administration's job to punish evil and to protect the citizens. You can really kind of clearly see that in Romans chapter 13, where Paul describes the role of the king in the high judicial authorities. In verse 2, it says, So then the one who resists the authority is opposing God's command, and those who oppose it will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have its approval. For it is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, because it does not carry the sword for no reason. For it is God's servant, an avenger, that brings wrath on the one who does wrong. 
So the king brings justice and carries the sword, but the priest is a minister of mercy, compassion, and kindness, which obviously are two wildly different offices. But the thing about it is, is that Melchizedek, alone of all people in the Old Testament, he was a priest and a king. In fact, we've discussed before, I consider Melchizedek to be a Christophany, an Old Testament appearance or manifestation of Jesus. Jesus, like Melchizedek, was a king and a priest. He is a forever priest, a permanent priest, the the permanent high priest, and he is the king of all kings. So he combines the justice, judgment, holiness, and authority of the king with the compassion, mercy, tenderness of the priest. And as you might expect, Jesus is like his father, who was also abounding in mercy and a just, holy, and almighty judge. So let's read Exodus 34 and see how God describes himself in that passage. Exodus 34, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible, the Lord said to Moses, cuts two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be prepared by morning. Come up Mount Sinai in the morning and stand before me on the mountaintop. No one may go up with you. In fact, no one must be seen anywhere on the mountain. Even the flocks and the herds are not to graze in front of that mountain. So Moses cut two stone tablets like the first one. He got up early in the morning and taking the two stone tablets in his hand, he climbed Mount Sinai just as the Lord had commanded him. The Lord came down in a cloud, stood with him there, and proclaimed his name, Yahweh. Then the Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, Yahweh. Yahweh is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and rich in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving wrongdoing, rebellion, and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's wrongdoing on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Moses immediately bowed down to the ground and worshiped. Then he said, My Lord, if I have indeed found favor in your sight, my Lord, please go with us. Even though this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wrongdoing and sin and accept us as your own possession. And the Lord responded, Look, I am making a covenant. I will perform wonders in the presence of all your people that have never been done in the earth or in any nation. All the people you live among will see Yahweh's work, for what I am doing with you is awe-inspiring. Observe what I command you today. I am going to drive out before you the Amorites, Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Be careful not to make a treaty with the inhabitants of the land that you are going to enter, otherwise they will become a snare among you. Instead, you must tear down their altars, smash their sacred pillars, and chop down their Asherah poles. You are never to bow down to another god because Yahweh, being jealous by nature, is a jealous god. Do not make a treaty with the inhabitants of the land, or else when they prostitute themselves with their gods and sacrifice to their gods, they will invite you, and you will eat their sacrifices. Then you will take some of their daughters as brides for your sons. Their daughters will prostitute themselves with their gods and cause your sons to prostitute themselves with their gods. 
Do not make cast images of gods for yourselves. Observe the festival of unleavened bread. You are to eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib as I commanded you, for you came out of Egypt in the month of Abib. The firstborn male from Every womb belongs to me, including all your male livestock, the firstborn of cattle or sheep. You must redeem the firstborn of a donkey with a sheep, but if you do not redeem it, break its neck. You must redeem all the firstborn of your sons. No one is to appear before me empty-handed. You are to labor six days, but you must rest on the seventh day. You must even rest during plowing and harvesting times." Observe the festival of weeks with the first fruits of the wheat harvest and the festival of ingathering at the turn of the agricultural year. Three times a year all your males are to appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. For I will drive out nations before you and enlarge your territory. No one will covet your land when you go up three times a year to appear before the Lord your God. Do not present the blood for my sacrifice with anything leavened. The sacrifice of the Passover festival must not remain until morning. Bring the best first fruits of your land to the house of the Lord your God. You must not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. The Lord also said to Moses, Write down these words, for I have made a covenant with you and with Israel based on these words. Moses was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He did not eat bread or drink water. He wrote the Ten Commandments, the words of the covenant, on the tablets. As Moses descended from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands as he descended the mountain, he did not realize that the skin of his face shone as a result of his speaking with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, the skin of his face shone. They were afraid to come near him. But Moses called out to them, so Aaron and all the leaders of the community returned to him, and Moses spoke to them. Afterward, all the Israelites came near, and he commanded them to do everything the Lord had told him on Mount Sinai. When Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever Moses went before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. After he came out, he would he would tell the Israelites what he had been commanded, and the Israelites would see that Moses' face was radiant. Then Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went to speak with the Lord. So that's that's such an interesting passage to me. In particular, I'm stirred by the fact that God says he is rich or abounding in faithful love and that he maintains that, quote, faithful love to a thousand generations. So back in my seminary days, I took a Hebrew exegesis class and one of our assignments was to write a long paper on one single Hebrew word. I thought it was going to be one of the toughest and most boring assignments I have ever had in class. First, because the fact of the matter is, Hebrew is a very hard language to learn. It's got entirely different characters from English. It's got no punctuation to speak of, no vowels per se, at least not the way we think of vowels. And the script reads right to left rather than left to right. Nevertheless, This assignment, even though it was, oh my goodness, so long ago, like 15 years ago, it has become one of my favorite and one of the most fruitful assignments I've ever had. Almost no other assignment in seminary quite revealed the character of God to me like studying this one Hebrew word that I studied. What was the word? It was the word chesed the word we translated above as faithful love twice, the thing that God is rich in. Chesed or kesed, it's 
pronounced multiple ways, but it's, um, think of it as C-H-E-C-E-D in English, basically. We don't have really an English equivalent for that word, but faithful love or covenant love is a close approximation, but we're going to get to a better word in just a minute, what I think is the best translation of that word. So I'd like to share a little bit, if you'll bear with me about that word. I'm going to read some from my paper, but not in an academic sense. I tried to take most of the academic stuff out. I want us to understand this description of God because for me, it totally opened my eyes in a way that really hadn't been before as to who God is. This one little Hebrew word that is used to describe God over a hundred times in the Bible. So the Hebrew word chesed is a significant Old Testament word that has generated quite a bit of theological controversy in recent scholarship, often translated with benevolent sounding words like mercy or love or the King James versions loving kindness, all one word together. None of these works capture the full meaning of the Hebrew, but they do come close A lot of scholars contend that chesed is best understood in the context of a covenantal relationship, while others counter that the word itself is not fully dependent on contractual obligations. This project, this paper, this discussion, this podcast is going to examine that word in a variety of Old Testament passages, defining its range of meaning from the context while seeking to determine whether the covenantal or contractual view of chesed is fully accurate. Because chesed is such a common word in the Old Testament, the focus here will be on the positive aspect of the word and will further zoom in on the aspect of chesed as expressed by God towards men. Now, this is a frequently word used word in the Old Testament, appearing somewhere in the neighborhood of 250 times, and it's appear it's distributed really all throughout the Old Testament, appearing more than once in at least 25 Old Testament books, ranging from the earliest books like Genesis and Job to the latest books like Esther and Malachi. By far, the book of Psalms contains the most instances of the word chesed, with at least 125, accounting for over half of the word's usage in the Old Testament. Chesed can sometimes refer to interhuman relationships, but somewhere in the neighborhood of 75 to 80 percent of the times that that word is used in the Old Testament, it is referring to to God's character and his dealings with man. Now, prior to the 1900s, the word was almost always translated using kind words, nice words, loving words like mercy, faithfulness, love, kindness, loving kindness. The uh, the Jacinius lexicon uses words like zeal, love, desire, mercy, and benevolence to describe it. Brown driver uh, Briggs, which first appeared, I think, in, I don't know, 1905, 1906, uses words uh, like kindness and goodness and, and gives this definition, kindness, especially as extended to the lowly, needed, and miserable. Now, the traditional understanding of that word was strongly challenged in 1927 with the release of a very influential doctoral dissertation published in Germany, sort of the seat of higher criticism of the Bible at that time, by a guy named Nelson Gluck. 
This work contained a detailed argument that chesed should be understood in light of covenant relationship, and it was therefore a word that was more a function of loyalty and fidelity and contractual obligation than mercy and kindness. Another scholar named R. Laird Harris summarized the Gluck view by saying, He built on the idea that Israel was bound to its God by covenants like the Hittites and other treaties. He held that God was pictured as dealing basically in this way with Israel. The Ten Commandments were stipulations of that covenant. Israel's victories were rewards of their covenant keeping or apostasy or falling away was covenant violation, and God's chesed in that sense was not basically mercy, but more loyalty to his contractual obligations. Now, that's sort of been the position of higher scholarship really since the time of the German critics in the 1920s. They don't view the word chesed quite as benevolent and kind and loving as uh, scholars before them do. They view it as more of a contract. In other words, God will be good to us if we do what he says for us to do. Here's the thing, though. All respect to Dr. Gluck, or no respect. I have no idea what kind of person he is. Um, a full examination of the way that the New, the Old Testament describes God using that word cheseth seems to really refute what Dr. Gluck says. And and look, I know we've been a little bit academic so far, but bear with me because this is where we get to the good part, the meaty part, where we really discuss the nature and character of God. So Dr. Gluck's contention must be dealt with in any discussion of the de- definition of chesed and therefore the character of God, both because it's widespread acceptance by scholars, and also because there are a few Old Testament passages that seem to validate what Dr. Gluck said. Here's the thing, though. The stakes of properly defining this word in a biblical sense are very high. Is God kind and loving to only certain people, and even then only because of his obligations or his covenant? Or is he merciful and kind to all because that is who he is? In other words, it's in his nature. It's easy to see how this word understood in a strictly covenantal way can lead to that dichotomy we talked about earlier, which I think is a false dichotomy between the God of the Old Testament, who really only loves out of obligation, and he punishes when the obligation is not met on the other end, and the God of the New Testament, who is loving and merciful. To understand how the Hebrew language is used in the Bible, context is really important. Gluck and other scholars after him have tried to pay careful attention to all of the instances of chesed that appears in passages of the Bible connected to covenantal themes. For instance, in 1 Kings 3, 6, Solomon answered, You have shown great kindness, or chesed, to your servant, my father David, because, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart. You have continued this great kindness to him and given him a son to sit on the, his throne to this very day. So note that, number one, the NIV there, which is what I read, translates both chesseds as kindness. In the KJV, it translates in that same passage, the first one is mercy and the second one is kindness, even though it's the same word. 
The NASB uses loving kindness, all one word together, in both spots. Now, because the the word because is here. In other words, Solomon is saying, you've shown great kindness to me because my father David was faithful to you. It is where that passage and a few others like it is where people like Gluck demonstrate or attempt to demonstrate that God's love is based on our obedience. There's another one that seems to demonstrate that. It's from Psalm 36.10. Continue your chesed, or your love, says the NIV, to those who know you, your righteousness to the upright in heart. So a lot of modern scholars see an almost quid pro quo here. God's chesed is given to those who know him and his righteousness to the upright. Now, going to other translations, we see that the NIV translates chesed in that passage with love. The KJV uses loving kindness. The Amplified does the same as the KJV. And the ESV uses two words to express the idea there, steadfast love. Another passage, and I think this is the last one that seems to confirm what Gluck is saying, is 2 Samuel twenty-two twenty-six. To the faithful, you show yourself Faithful, chesed is the word there. To the blameless, you show yourself blameless. So that is one of the passage, one of the handful of passages that sort of seem to confirm that there is a covenantal nature of chesed. However, and this is really important, it should be noted that there are many, many, and I believe many more instances of chesed in the Old Testament that do not contain even a sly or a veiled reference to covenant or an agreement. A clear example is found, for instance, in 1 Kings 20.31. The Syrian king Ben-Hadad has just seen his army defeated by Israel's army, and he's facing the prospect of death. And this is what the text says. His officials said to him, look, we have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are chesed. And that is translated there as merciful. Let us go to the king of Israel with sackcloth around our waists and ropes around our heads. Perhaps he will spare your life. So the context there has nothing to do with covenant in any way. It's simply listed as a character trait of the kings of Israel, irrespective of their relationships, particularly in this case with the enemy. Turning again to God's relationship with humanity, we get to our focus passage of the day, Exodus 34, 6, which describes an encounter between Moses and God in the midst of the reception of the Ten Commandments. Though the receiving of the commandments are the setting of this passage, it's clear that God's description of himself has nothing to do contextually with the fact that the, the Ten Commandments are being produced. And so the, the passage says, And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness— chesed, and truth. That's the King James Version translation because the KJV uses goodness there while the NIV opts for love and the NASB uses loving kindness. Given that God's declaration of his love, mercy, and long-suffering happened directly, this passage, if you'll remember from yesterday, happened directly after a great falling away by the Israelites in Exodus 33, it's difficult to see how God is proclaiming his chesed here in this passage only in the context of covenant. 
This declaration of God in his abiding chesed is very similar to many, many others found in Psalm 86, 15, 103.8, and even going all the way to Nehemiah 9.7. There's even an instance, maybe a couple, where the word chesed substitutes as a name for God. For instance, Psalm 144.2 says, He is my loving God and my fortress, my stronghold and my deliverer, my shield in whom I take refuge, who subdues peoples under me. That beginning part, He is my loving God, the NIV has added the word God there. The only word there in the original Hebrew is, He is my chesed. That's a word that describes the character of God. Now, one final passage to deal with today, Psalm 51. In Psalm 51, David has um, has been caught having murdered his friend Uriah the Hittite. He's been caught in adultery with Bathsheba. He is crying out to God for forgiveness in that passage. And this is what he says in verse 1, have mercy on me, O God, according to your chesed. The NIV says unfailing love there. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. David's plea is not there based on his covenant with God. David has broken the covenant with God, but he's still leaning on God's mercy or his loving kindness. Several things are clear from the above passages. First, chesed is translated in a myriad of ways in every translation of the Bible, but it always seems to carry with it the idea of kindness, benevolence, mercy, steadfast love, etc. Though it's an archaic term, I honestly think the best translation we have for that word is something like loving kindness, as it best encompasses all of the nuances of the word that are called for by what we've read above. Second, I should say that even though chesed is often used in some, not often, occasionally used in covenantal passages, um, it's quite a stretch to say that the word should be defined in that context only because it's used in so many other contexts where it clearly and simply means kindness, love, mercy, loving kindness, benevolence, that sort of thing. John Piper, way back when he was a uh, professor at Bethel College in the late 1970s, he comes to a similar conclusion, and he says this, Therefore, God's chesed and the mercy that flows from it, understood in its most fundamental sense, precedes and grounds the covenant rather than vice versa. It is that which moved God in his sovereign freedom to graciously initiate a relationship with Israel. Now, what is Piper saying there? He's saying that it's not the agreement that God has with Israel that causes him to be kind to them. It is God's chesed in the beginning, the very nature of his character, his loving kindness that comes before the agreement, before the covenant. So spiritual application of that truth is twofold. Primarily, when we see that word and we study chesed, we see a God who is 
abundantly full of grace, love, and mercy. His kindness is everlasting and his mercy is sure. Secondly, the truth can be used apologetically, particularly with somebody who denies the truth of the Bible because of the false assumption that the Old Testament God is different from the New Testament God, which is not true at all. It's not grammatically true. It's not contextually true. It's just not true. Careful analysis of the word chesed demonstrates to us that God is a God of loving kindness and mercy in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. So it's therefore a very important word to understand if we want to understand the attributes of God and his relationship with his people. God's loving kindness does not spring out of obligation, nor is it only available to the select few that he's in covenant with, nor it is, is it only open to those who are absolutely pure-hearted and lovers of God. Loving kindness is an aspect of God's being, independent of his relationship with man, but informing every facet of that relationship. And the ground of the character of God being chesed is mercy, loving kindness. He doesn't deal with us as we deserve. He deals with us in mercy. And that's what that word indicates, that God is a God of abounding loving kindness and mercy. Well, that was a little different than most of our podcasts, but I hope it was uh, fruitful for you. I hope it was eye-opening to you. I myself, and maybe it's just me, I tend to get a lot out of doing word studies in the Bible, like finding a word in a really important passage and seeing how that word is used in other passages, seeing what the root of the word is, the studying the etymology of it, especially when it's a word that, that describes the character of God, you know, like over a hundred times. I want to know who God is. I want to know what he's like. I want to understand his character I'm obviously not going to be able to, but at least from a human place, I want to know God. And digging deep into what these words mean and how the Bible uses them can really illuminate us in our quest to know God and to know his character. Well, we'll be back to uh, more normal things tomorrow. But for now, let's read Proverbs chapter 10, verse 1. A wise son brings joy to his father, but a foolish son heartache to his mother. Ill-gotten gains do not profit anyone, but righteousness rescues from death. The Lord will not let the righteous go hungry, but he denies the wicked what they crave. Idle hands make one poor, but diligent hands bring riches. The son who gathers during summer is prudent. The son who sleeps during harvest is disgraceful. Blessings are on the head of the righteous, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. The remembrance of the righteous is a blessing, but the name of the wicked will rot. A wise heart accepts commands, but foolish lips will be destroyed. The one who lives with integrity lives securely, but whoever perverts his ways will be found out. A sly wink of the eye causes grief, and foolish lips will be destroyed. The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. Hatred stirs up conflicts, but love covers all offenses. Wisdom is found on the lips of the discerning, but a rod is for the back of the one who lacks sense. 
The wise store up knowledge, but the mouth of the fool hastens destruction. The wealth of the rich is his fortified city. The poverty of the poor is their destruction. The reward of the righteous is life. The wages of the wicked is punishment. The one who follows instruction is on the path to life, but the one who rejects correction goes astray. The one who conceals hatred has lying lips, and whoever spreads slander is a fool. When there are many words, sin is unavoidable, but the one who controls his lips is prudent. The tongue of the righteous is pure silver. The heart of the wicked is of little value. The lips of the righteous feed many, but fools die for common sense or for lack of sense. The Lord's blessing enriches, and he adds no painful effort to it. As shameful conduct is a pleasure for a fool, so wisdom is a pleasure for a person of understanding. Standing. What the wicked dreads will come to him, but what the righteous desire will be given to them. When the whirlwind passes, the wicked are no more, but the righteous are secure forever. Amen. That's a good word. Like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, so the slacker is to the one who sends him on an errand. The fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked are cut short. The hope of the righteous is joy, but the expectation of the wicked will perish. The way of the Lord is a stronghold for the honorable, but destruction awaits the malicious. The righteous will never be shaken, but the wicked will not remain on the earth. The mouth of the righteous produces wisdom, but a perverse tongue will be cut out. The lips of the righteous know what is appropriate, but the mouth of the wicked only what is perverse. John chapter 13, verse 1. Before the fast Passover festival, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now when it was time for supper, the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, to betray him. Jesus knew that the Father had given everything into his hands, that he had come from God, and that he was going back to God. So he got up from supper, laid aside his outer clothing, took a towel, and tied it around himself. Next, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to dry them with the towel tied around him. He came to Simon Peter, who asked him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I'm doing you don't realize now, but afterward you will understand. You will never wash my feet, Peter said. Jesus replied, If I don't wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. One who is bathed, Jesus told him, doesn't need to wash anything except his feet, but he is completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. This is why he said, not all of you are clean. When Jesus had washed their feet and put on his outer clothing, he reclined again and said to them, Do you know what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are speaking rightly, since that is what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you. Truly I tell you, a servant is not greater than his master, and a messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. I'm not speaking about all of you. I know who I have chosen, but the scripture must be fulfilled. The one who eats my bread has raised his heel against me. I am telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am he." Truly I tell you, whoever receives anyone I send receives me, and the one who receives me receives him who sent me. When Jesus had said this, he was troubled in his spirit and testified, 
Truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. The disciples started looking at one another, uncertain which one he was speaking about. One of his disciples, the one Jesus loved, was reclining beside Jesus. Simon Peter motioned to him to find out who it was he was talking about, so he leaned back against Jesus and asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus replied, He's the one I give the piece of bread to after I have dipped it. When he had dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas, Simon Iscariot's son. After Judas ate the piece of bread, Satan entered him. So Jesus told him, What you are doing, do quickly. None of those reclining at the table knew why he had said to this, this to them. Since Judas kept the money bag, some thought that Jesus was telling him, Buy what we need for the festival, or that he should give something to the poor. After receiving the piece of bread, he immediately left, and it was night. When he had left, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him at once. Children, I am with you a little while longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so now I tell you, where I am going, you cannot come. I give you a new command, love one another, just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Lord, Simon Peter said to him, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me later. Lord, Peter asked, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus replied, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly I tell you, a rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. Brothers and sisters, in the midst of difficult and hard times, may we not be of the people that deny Jesus, but may we be of the people that proclaim him with passion and vigor and peace and faith. And may all of those things be yours in Christ Jesus. Good day to you and Godspeed.